Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's an entrepreneur, speaker, four-time Paralympic medalist, and four-time world champion for Team USA. It's Lex Gillette. How are you doing today, Lex? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm excited to learn more about your Rise to the Challenge. First, what we do with all of our guests is we go straight to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? I am from Raleigh, North Carolina, and as a kid, I was doing your typical kid activities, playing outside with friends, video games, riding bicycles, uh, very much involved in sports as well. So I played recreational baseball. I used to swim. I wouldn't say I swam competitively, but I could, you know, I can totally hold my own and, you know, freestyle and backstroke and things like that. Uh, hit a few cannonballs every now and then too. <laughs> and um, I want to say around the time I was eight years old, I started to experience sight loss just randomly out of the blue. So that was a pretty, that was a, a, a difficult thing to go through. But um, I eventually went to the doctor and after a, a few examinations, I needed to have a uh, an emergency operation because I was suffering from retina detachments, which led to a string of 10 operations that I've had on my eyes to try to fix the issue. They were all unsuccessful. After the last one, doctors said there was nothing else they could do. And they said I would eventually become blind. From there, it was go home, go through my normal routine, go to sleep at night, wake up the next morning. And each day you see a little less of what you do the day before until one day you wake up and you're not able to make out much of anything. Um, that happens and it's like, it hits you flat in the chest. And it was, it was definitely tough, but had a lot of amazing people, still have a lot of amazing people in my life who, who helped me overcome that. And, uh, you know, hence the podcast, they helped me rise to the challenge. When you were going through that with each day a little bit less and less you were able to see, did it kind of hurt your mindset or were you kind of like, I have to make what's best of the situation and keep living my life the way I want to live it? I think there was a couple things. Number one, that being so young is kind of, it's already difficult, right? Because you're, you're already in this space where you're growing, you're developing, and you're trying to figure out life as as a young child so each day is 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 different i think that with number two with those operations i had 10 in the span of 12 months so when you think about the first couple like one two three you go in that situation you're optimistic mm -hmm. all right the doctors are going to they're going to fix this and everything is going to be okay when those were unsuccessful, now you move into operation four, five, six, and seven. And I'm still hopeful, but not as much as in the beginning, you've already gone to the operating room so many times and, and you're on that, that table as they roll it from the patient area to that, that cold operating room and I mean, there's just so much that, that you're feeling at that time and, and you've dealt with it five, six, seven times. So that optimism is, is starting to, is starting to decline. 
And then I think by the time I got to operation eight, nine and number 10, I feel like subconsciously I was at that point where, you know what, this might be my new reality. So when the doctor did finally say, okay, you're not going to be able to see again, as tough as it was, um, somewhere deep down inside, it's kind of like, all right, well, this, this is the, this is life as it is. Let's figure out how to, you know, let's figure out how to make it happen. And I had acquired that type of outlook and, and mindset from my mom. Which was your mom like a big motivation or inspiration for you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cause I mean, for, for the longest it's been, it's been her and I, um, uh, single parent and, um, you know, we, we did everything together in Raleigh. She'd take me to the park and when I would ride my bicycle outside, she was there supervising and, um, you know, she, she did everything that, a that, a that a great mom is supposed to do. And, uh, so to have that support was really huge. And, and even though it was hard, she was someone I could lean on and you know, get, uh, you know, get that love and, and, and care and advice from to be able to, to get through each day. Was there a time where when you were playing sports and activities that you might've thought that maybe I can do something with this, like go professional or pursue it even more? N never. Never, um, you know, prior to, I, I would say that like before I lost my sight, I was, I really loved basketball. So I always felt like if I, if I was able to, to, to still see that maybe I would participate in basketball some way. But um, at that age, I was, I was thinking I would be a lawyer one day, a writer, um, eventually, I thought about computers. So my mind was, was in other places. As you were getting older, were those kind of dream jobs still those options or did you kind of find a new passion? Once I, once I was introduced to sport, that's when everything shifted. And I was like, you know what, maybe I could do something with this. But still, my mom was always a proponent of, I want you to, I want you to get your education because even though you may be able to participate in sports, that is, that's something that you can enjoy it for X number of years. And then at some point it ha it fades away. Um, we all, you know, at some point we, we are not as fast as we used to be. We don't jump as high and we don't move as quickly as, as we did years prior. So, you always have to have something to, to fall back on. So even though I was participating in sports more and I had gotten, you know, I was getting competitive and I was starting to travel. It was always in the back of my mind that, Hey, I need to, I need to graduate from high school. I need to graduate from college and be able to establish some, some other plans so that when, when the whole sports gig is over with, I can transition into, to, uh, you know what that next phase of life is going to look like i think that's always been a huge topic nowadays where a lot of athletes and maybe even other industries where they kind of want to pursue that but they don't have that background and that's why a lot of people are always pushing make sure you have that education because injuries can happen out of nowhere or at any moment 
and sometimes it's life threatening or career threatening and then you have to rely on that background so when you were pursuing education what were you going for and where did you go I started I went to East Carolina University in Greenville North Carolina go Pirates and uh I, I started off as a computer science major, and I want to say halfway through my first semester, I did some more researching on the different degrees that were available, and I ended up switching it to something more sports-specific. So uh, recreation management is what I ended up graduating. Uh, that's what I got my degree in. And, um, you know, I felt like that better suited me. It it involved sports, involved recreation, and it also involved different things, uh, you know, relative to to team building and um, uh, just different exercises and activities that you can employ and, and have people participate in so that they can gain a greater sense of what it means to persevere or what it means to work within a team or what it means to, to be courageous or, you know, all of those things. Uh, as much as I love sport, I think that sport is a, is a, is a huge communicator when it comes to skills that we all have within us, but just need some sort of activity or need a person to help pull it, pull it out of us. Um, so I got into recreation management and, uh, and, you know, ended up graduating. And once I, once I had that uh, degree, then I started focusing a lot more on sport for those first, I would say, I don't know, four or five, six years or so. And then I began to do more of, uh, like getting out there and, and speaking and, and kind of tapping into that degree and, and having experiential learning programs and, and speeches and all of those types of things to be able to, you know, to help, uh, you know, the, the people who I work with. So during college, when did you kind of find your passion for track and field? I think the passion has started when I was in high school, but it really was solidified when you know, my first year in college, I remember when I, I was walking to my dorm room one day and I get this mysterious phone call, my cell phone, I pick it up. It's the United States Olympic Committee at the time. Now that the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, but, but the United States Olympic Committee had called me and they were saying how they had been watching my results and, you know, you're doing really awesome, blah, 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 blah. blah. We're pleased to let you know that you are a part of the, the national team, your results that, that you've been getting in your competitions are, uh, you know, they're grounds for, for you making the national team. And so that was a really exciting phone call that I had received and had to fill out some paperwork. And I'll never forget that walk to, to my dorm room because it was so, it was so exciting. And from there, I continued to train and compete and my, my sophomore year, the fall semester is when I had, I went to my very first Paralympic Games 
And uh, once I was able to go through that experience to walk inside of the stadium to to compete against other high caliber athletes around the globe, to be connected with other teammates from the United States of America who were extremely talented, to to just to travel and be competing in front of thousands of people that that was a you know something that you can't even really put it into words and uh once i once i had gotten that experience i said man you know what this is this is me this is what i want to do for a while so looking to your left you have the your jersey how important was it to representing the united states during like the world championship or the paralympics it has a lot of meaning because you you train for for you know 365 days a year to have this opportunity to compete at you know this one moment in time you run the 100 the 100 meter race it's going to last 11 seconds yep you train in the long jump and or you compete in the long jump and you know if you break it down from a from a time standpoint it probably takes for those six attempts that you're granted in the competition, if you add up the time for each individual attempt, it's probably no more than 30 seconds. So for you to put in hours and hours and hours of training to be able to, to have this one moment in time to be able to put that jersey on, um, you know, it, it definitely means a lot. And then from me, I all, you know, a lot of times I think about growing up and, and losing my sight and having to go through that 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 storm if you will and how many people it took to help me to see my potential how many programs and tools and resources that it took to help shift my mindset i think about all of those things and to stand on that podium each time it's like wow everything that we did growing up helped to propel me to this point. When you were getting those medals, was there always maybe someone that you were looking at in the crowd? Like, was your family there? And you're like, I was doing it for you and everyone in America. Or did you kind of have that? I'm proud of who I am and what I was able to accomplish also. Yeah, I think uh, I definitely think a lot of it is you're proud of yourself and you're you're proud of your ability to be disciplined to stay focused to go after a a singular goal and to achieve that goal i think that as we traverse through life whatever it is that we participate in um you know i think that we should we should certainly tap into that discipline and be focused and envision whatever that goal is and when you achieve it, yeah, yeah, I think that you earn the right to be able to, you know, to feel good about yourself and, and to celebrate that. Now, there's certainly a a healthy dose of that, and there's a an an unhealthy dose that, that people have, <laughs> which can take you into the, like that. Okay, you you got too much pride, your ego, and and your you know all of those, your cocky, whatever, whatever, arrogance. Um, but I do think that that's the beauty of life to be able to set a course to achieve it and to sit back 
and relish in that for for a few minutes. But I also think that it is very important to acknowledge the fact that you got there because of someone else. You got there because of someone's wisdom, someone's tutelage, someone's oversight. And, and for sure, standing on that podium, my mom has been to all of the games that I've competed in with the exception of Beijing in 2008. She's been to all of the other games and the competitions that she that she hasn't attended. Um, you know, her and a multitude of other people, they live through those experiences vicariously. So even though they may not be in the stands, I know that, you know, me being up there was was because of them. Um, and I think that when you, when you think about the American public, specifically people who have a disability, I certainly have them in mind as well because we're viewed a certain way within society. And I think that it is, is, is really cool and it's important to be a, a, a symbol, a representative of sorts to be able to show the world what is possible, not only through athletics, but just from a, from a day-to-day lifestyle living type perspective i mean people don't look at us as equally as others at times and um you know as challenging as it is and as frustrating as it may as it may be got to keep pushing um got to keep pushing forward so i think you totally hit a good note is where how society is and how people aren't treated equally but there's really no difference between you or I. We're both humans living in this world, living out our dreams every single day. And we're wanting to rise to our own challenge, no matter what we're going through. And that's the passion I have with this show is we all have stories. We may just have like a bio written to us on like a LinkedIn profile or a website. But when we talk, we're able to dig down deep and learn more about each other and share it to the world the challenges that we've struggled and how we didn't let that stop us. We're here today to show that everyone can get through any situation that they have. Absolutely. That is totally true. Do you have a favorite like moment, like, uh, like a championship or an Olympic games that you went through something that stands out to you today? Favorite moment. You know what? One of my favorite moments at a competition, 2012, we're in London, England, Paralympic Games. I'm competing in the triple jump. I am on my, I want to say my fourth attempt, and I am standing on the runway. I'm trying to get myself pumped up. I'm clapping my hands a certain a certain uh, rhythm. And literally, when I tell you all 80,000 people in the stands started clapping their hands the exact same way that was one of the coolest experiences to be a part of because in that in that moment you realize that unity is a thing like for us to all be connected in some capacity that is a real thing and there's power in that and as soon as I was ready to to go for my attempt I kind of turned to the crowd and I gave yeah. them a, you know, can, can I get some silence? And everyone just, the silence covered 
covered the land. And, you know, I was able to, uh, when I'm competing in long jump, I have a guide who stands at the takeoff point and he's clapping and yelling. So that gives me that audible reference. So you can imagine if the crowd is yelling and they're clapping, then that creates a, that, that creates a barrier of sorts that can be distracting. So they make sure for the blind athletes to lower the crowd noise so that we can hear our guides. But to have control in that moment in time, that was, that's, that's a, a moment I'll never forget. I could just imagine that. 80,000 people. And those, I mean, I remember watching those games. There's so many people and everyone is doing exactly what you're wanting to them. It's like you're yeah. the conductor of like a band. And just having that energy, that would feel like for any athlete, that would get you going. Like, I, and now I got to perform at the highest level. And that's just amazing to hear that. Now, it wasn't maybe just like what you did at the event, but it was just the atmosphere that you enjoyed. Oh, yeah. When you are training, talk about the type of training that you do. Because you talked about you do like the 100 meters and then you do like the triple jump. Yeah. Talk about the difference and how you prepare for those events. Yep, that's a good question. So as a as a blind athlete, there are there are certain rules that we have to abide by. And for me, since I'm in the totally blind category of Paralympics, it requires two things. One is that I, I have to run with a guide. So someone who's literally participating alongside of you when you're when you're running a, a race, they're running directly beside you. And number two, I have to wear a blindfold when I compete. So I actually have the one that I compete in right here kind of makes me look like a, like a superhero. I just put this, you know, put the strap above my head. And um, so I have to wear a blindfold and that is to create an equal playing field across the board. They don't want anyone to see anything. And, uh, and you also have to, to run with the guides. So in the sprint races, they're either on your left-hand side or your right-hand side. And in a, a race, we're designated two lanes. So mm -hmm. that gives you ample amount of space to work with um, in, that, in that race. And so your guide is literally, they're running beside you and you use a tether, which a tether kind of puts you in the mind of a, a lanyard of sorts. Mm -hmm. So if we kind of use this as an example, I would have two fingers in one loop of the lanyard and then the opposite side, the guide would have two loops or two fingers in, in that loop. So that keeps you connected when you're running. And from there, it's, it's, it's basically staying in a, like a three-legged race type situation, but with your arms. So you want to mirror each other when you're running. So for me, I like to start with my left foot forward, right foot back, which means right arm forward, left arm back and you want your guide to mirror you. So if my guide is on my right-hand side, then he would put his left arm forward, right arm back, right leg forward, left leg back. So when we're running, we're in a, a, fluid, mm -hmm. a fluid race, a continuous motion. And when you get to races like the 100 meters, for example, I'm pretty sure you're well aware that you you need to have a smooth race because you could lose the 100 meters by a, a hundredth of a second, a thousandth of a second. So if you're running and you guys are not in sync and you're kind of jockeying for position and, and all of this, that can slow down your time and you won't, uh, 
you know, that can be the difference between you getting gold and the difference between you going home empty handed. So the other interesting thing about when we talk about the races specifically, the guide has to allow the athlete to cross the finish line first. Athlete always crosses the line first. If the guide crosses the finish line first, automatic disqualification. Oh, wow. So that's by far one of the most important rules in the sport. Um, so uh, again, if you're on a sprint race, the tour you are going fast as you can, right? Mm-hmm. You have to, the guide has to be skilled enough to almost put on the brakes to let this athlete cross the finish line first. But again, that just comes with you practice on a daily basis, Monday through Friday. So um, the guides develop that type of, of skill to be able to, to, you know, slow down just a tad to let the athlete cross first. So that's how it looks in the, uh, in the, in the races on the track. Now, if you're on a field event, specifically in the long jump and triple jump, your guide isn't allowed to run with you. They have to stand stationary. So they typically will stand at the takeoff point, the takeoff board that's in the ground where the, the officials usually measure your jump from and they are clapping and, and yelling. And that gives you that, that auditory, that audible, so that you can listen and know which direction your guide is, is uh, where he's standing. And from there, you are running as fast as you can, a specific distance that you determine in, in your training sessions over, over the, the months and years that you've been training. And once you get to your appropriate step, you, you jump and land in the sand. So for me, I take 16 strides when I compete and that takes me about 115 feet to cover. Mm-hmm. I'm standing at the start point. My guide is standing at the takeoff board. He's clapping and yelling. And literally when I run, I'm, I'm counting in my head those strides. And at this point, we've been working together. My guide and I have been working together for so long. It's almost like muscle memory now. And uh, once I get to the right step, then I, then I jump. Um, but a lot of this, we're able to do this because of, you know, Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, training together for, for weeks upon weeks, months upon months, for four years in the lead up to that one moment in time. Which event is your favorite? Long jump is my favorite. That's, that's what I started. Mm-hmm. That's the very first event that I started in. And, and um, you know, it's, 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 yeah, I love it. Are you still competing today? Like, is your goal, well, it was probably going to be uh, the 2020 games, but now it's since it's postponed. Or are you trying to take it easy after a amazing career? You know what? I just started training um, last week. I got into the weight room last week, so I'm pretty sore right now. But yes, the goal is to go to Tokyo and and get a gold in Tokyo. Is there any thought of when will be my last games, or you're are you kind of that person that we're taking a year by year? Uh, that is a question that I have been battling, and I will definitely. I will, I will probably do Paris, which is 2024. And I think from there, it'll be a year by year situation. In a perfect world, I think that I would love to compete in 2028. 
um, because that's going to be in Los Angeles and it'll be a really good curtain call to end my career on American soil. Mm-hmm. But we'll just have to see how it all, how it all boils, how it all plays out. Mind you, I mean, I, I went to my first games when I was 19 and, um, and so I've literally been doing this for half of my life. <laughs> so it's a, uh, even though it is fun and, and it's enjoyable and I get a lot of, I get a lot of joy and satisfaction from it. Um, you know, there comes a time where you just have to, you know, you transition on to, to other things. So, um, I'm going to definitely go through Paris, which is, you know, it's another four years and we'll take it year by year after that. But if I can, if I can wrap it up in LA, that would be a, that'd be a dream come true. Looking at so far with your career as an Olympic athlete and someone that represents Team USA, what's the biggest thing you've learned about yourself? The biggest thing that I've learned about myself that's a very good question. Um, I think that the the amount of internal strength that that we all have. Um, I think that, of course, being able to to get through the the sight loss process. Of course, that took a certain level of of, of strength, but, um, I think that, you know, as you continue to, to grow and evolve, I think that we, on that journey, on that path of life, we acquire and, and, and learn that we possess certain, uh, just certain skills that are useful to achieving our, our personal goals and, and aspirations. And no matter what deep, dark place we may find ourselves, we have what it takes inside of us to be able to get out of those things. And if you don't feel like you do, one of the symbolic things of, of the relationship that an athlete and guide has in the Paralympics is that we're always connected. And when we're connected, we're able to do amazing things on the track and, and in the field. But as soon as we lose that connection, as soon as let's say that 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 tether you may be holding if you if it breaks or if someone loses loses um loses grip of one side or if you're in the long jump and and your your guide is clapping and yelling but for whatever reason the crowd is interfering with with your ability to hear them now you're you're losing connection and you're not able to compete and and do what you need to do as an athlete and so when you look at us as human beings it's a similar thing we all we have what it takes inside of us to do amazing phenomenal you know prolific things but in in doing so we need connection as well um, to be able to pull that that strength that internal strength out of us but when you don't have that connection to people who genuinely want to see you do well, people who love you, who, who care for you, who want to see you be successful in whatever arena of life that you're that you're navigating through, ha- not having that connection is, is going to have you in a, a, a difficult spot. Um, 
So I know I pointed out a <laughs> I pointed out a couple of things, but uh, I think that for sure I've learned that we all have a, a ton of strength. Um, but to really capitalize on that and to tap into that, we need that that human connection. I think that's in any situation, even in the business side or working kind of having that human connection with coworkers, being able to work as a team. And you mentioned earlier when you were studying with recreational management and the idea that what sports teaches you, it talked about, you talked about the whole teamwork and being able to, you have that trust in your guide because if they make a mistake or something happens, it, it takes away from that, those moments in a quick instant. So human connection, everyone can use that nowadays. For sure. And even when you're with your friends, family, being able to have that bond with them and everyone finds their inner strength. And that's what's great about the way that we all live and the path that we take is you kind of find something new about yourself that you're good at. I think when I was in college, I found a passion in event planning. And I'm like, I've never planned an event, but somehow it became a strength of mine. And nowadays I'm getting asked, hey, can you look at this event proposal? And I'm like, sure. I mean, I don't know what I did, but somehow I did something good with it. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think that you talk about how we all need connection. I think that we've seen it within the pandemic. Um, you know, as soon as soon as things started to come down the pipeline and we we had these shelter in place orders and can't go out into the public unless it's for essential needs. Now you're you're literally like, oh, man, I'm stuck in the house. And some people may be stuck with their families. Some people may you know have their job and some people may not have their job, unfortunately. Um, but at the end of the day, at the the biggest thing is maintaining the connection with those who are who are your supporters who are your cheerleaders who are the people who love you and and have that genuine care for you because again when you find yourself in these ruts and these difficult spaces in life those are the people who can when you connect with them they in a lot of ways make you forget about your shortcomings or things that you may have believed were your shortcomings they make you forget about these these challenging times in life. And, and I always like to say, you know, for someone like me, who's been blind since I was eight years old, I, the people who I connect with, um, it is almost like when I, when we're latched on, when we're truly connected, they make me forget that, that I'm blind. It's almost like I can see through the visual acuity that they lend to me. And in a lot of ways, I feel like that's, you know, there's some reciprocity there as well because they're able to to see clearly as well. So um, we we definitely need that connection because it elevates us, elevates us to spaces that we may not have previously believed that we could reach. I totally agree. Talk about in between the championships and Olympic Games, you've had a lot of opportunities as brand ambassadors for companies and being a keynote speaker. Talk about what have you learned about doing those opportunities? The biggest thing I learned about those is, is that it's, it's all about the people who you are, it's all about the audiences, it's all about the people who you are, are working with. And I point that out because when I had first gotten thrown into speaking, I was so shy and I was, 
I was still dealing with some insecurities, I believed at that time, specifically surrounding blindness and wondering if people were looking at me a certain way, wondering if people were actually getting something from what I was speaking about on stage until I finally came to the point where I don't know if it was a conversation that I had with someone or if it just magically just snapped into my mind that, listen, at the end of the day, when you're on these stages, when you're asked to be a part of these promos or these commercials or these sponsor deals or whatever, if you are changing at least someone's, at least one person's perception, their, their mindset, their thinking, if you're helping them to you know, kind of get off of the sidelines and get into the game of life, then your, your job is achieved. And so that really helped me out a lot. So, you know, those, those groups that I would sit in front of, I'm now thinking about, okay, well, what from my story can I pull that will resonate with them? What kind of lesson or experience, idea or thought can I give this person or, or these participants um, that will help them successfully navigate down whatever road they're, they're wanting to navigate down. And, and once that energy shifted, that, that thought process shifted, then it just made, it made the job not seem like a job. <laughs> it's not a job in my head. It's, it's a lot of fun to be able to connect with people. And, and um, I think it's huge because I remember what it was like to be in that, in that space, to be in that rut. Um, of course, the elephant in the room was in my sight, but there's been other things too. At the end of the day, you know, I'm a, I'm a human as well. And I go through different, different ups and downs, but to be able to take things specifically from my experiences or experiences that I hear about and to turn those into teachable moments for audience members, for participants, that is, that is the most important thing. I think with speaking and even doing podcasts is we can always share something and yeah. you never know who is listening to these interviews and something will catch their thoughts and they're like, wow, yeah, I kind of needed to hear that or I didn't know, maybe I should try this. And I think something I've learned is definitely from listening to you and I've enjoyed learning about your story, the human connection. I think a lot of times where we see a lot of negativity like on social media and stuff and we have to be able to not be like that because words hurt people and we need to be in the stage where we're lifting people up and being a, being very positive and if you're having these times where you're having negative thoughts about someone think about is it really important to have a negative thought about this person and stuff like that what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish? We talked about that your goal is to go is the Olympics and with Paris 2024 and Los Angeles 2028. But personally and professionally, what, what other goals are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to, so I wrote a book last year, released that in April and it's called Fly, Find Your Own Wings and Soar Above Life's Challenges and you can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, a lot of the, the major bookstores, but I want to write some more. I think there's more information to be shared to your point. You talk about podcasts, you think about books, you think about 
uh, like learning modules and all of these different mechanisms that we can use to share information and share knowledge. And I certainly want to take everything that I've learned and, and just exhaust it, like exhaust it from my mind and get it out there. Um, I think that there, there's certainly, to your point again, people hear something, they read something, they experience something, and it, it could totally change the trajectory of, of how they maneuver and view life. I want to, I want to um, incorporate uh, some like more like music type stuff into my speeches as well. So I'm, I'm in a process of trying to figure out like a hybrid type of situation where I'm still, I'm speaking, but then also incorporating some, some singing and maybe some instrumentation in there as well. So that's going to be exciting to, to work on and uh, just continuing to build my business and to invest my time and, and participate in things that, that bring me joy from a, from a charitable standpoint and, and really just trying to just enjoy life as much as I can. Here in, I'm in Southern San Diego or Southern California. I'm in San Diego. So to, uh, to have this great weather, man, you got to get out there and enjoy it. So I'm just trying to, trying to have a good life. So Lex, you're telling me the next time I hear you speak, it's going to be like a mini concert also. Man, it might be. <laughs> it might be. You're going to have a number one hit on the Billboard charts. And all. We go. We go see. <laughs> so the final question I'll ask you is for someone that's listening to this interview, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome their challenges, accomplish their goals, and rise to their challenge? I think that a lot of it for me, it really surrounds the idea of vision. And that is the one thing that really connected me back to the rest of the world. When I had lost my sight, it was, you know, I'm not able to see. So I'm, I felt isolated. I felt disconnected from everyone else. But the one thing that brought me back, the one thing that helped me see that, you know what, you're going to be good is this idea of vision because Everything that has been created, everything that will will be created, it always starts from a vision. You see it within yourself, within your mind, within others before it can transform into reality. And when you move to to number two, so number one, you, you need that vision. Number two is understanding that if it is a true vision, then it is something that has the ability to transform thinking transform cultures it can can improve the world it's not for any singular person it's not for one human being <clears throat> excuse me and then number three get the under uh, understand that you can't do it alone if it is something that is meant to change the trajectory of the society that we live in and, and how we operate in life then it, it requires other people. It requires different perspectives. Five, 10 people sitting at the table sharing ideas, perspectives, sharing information is much more conducive to changing the world versus having one person at the table thinking alone. When we can, when we can get multiple perspectives and, and multiple uh, backgrounds and, and cultures and ideas and thoughts to the table, then you are in, in words that I like to use, you are improving the visual acuity 
you are proving how much we can see and how much we're able to, uh, how much we're able to, you know, who we can be. And, um, and then lastly, number four, understand that you, you gotta have the, uh, the plan and the steps because those are the specific items, the specific things that are going to help you bring that vision into fruition. And it doesn't have to be these monster steps, these monster goals. Obviously, you, you're going to have that, that, that huge vision, which you see for the future, but you need smaller goals. You need those short-term opportunities so that you can achieve those on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis, so that you can see that you're making progress. And when we're seeing progress, we're seeing that we're moving forward. That keeps us motivated. It keeps us inspired to keep to keep pushing forward. And the next thing you know, as you continue to follow down that path, down that plan that you've set, the plan that you and and those five, 10, 20, 50, 100 people, that one that you you all have have uh, invested your time and energy into, that that vision that you that vision that was in the boundaries of your skull at one point, <laughs> then that thing can be in the boundaries of spread within the boundaries of the United States. It can be spread within the boundaries of this globe that we live in. Lex, those are all great advice. And I think a lot of people listening to this will definitely learn a lot and how they maybe look into what they're doing nowadays. But Lex, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. We definitely have learned so much about your journey and what we can learn about ourselves. And we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And yes, for everyone listening, you have what it takes to rise to the challenge.